0: <laughs> Whoa.
1: So this is Radio Land, huh? The infinite turtle, the, the ways for the ether fuzz roll on forever. <laughs> <laughs> This is Death by DVD, and you are listening to Harry Scott Sullivan, your host. And on this episode, we begin a new series all about Masters of Horror, a horror anthology show created by the great Mick Garris in 2005 that ran for two, well, technically three seasons. And to begin this new series, we have a special guest joining us. Author, musician, podcaster, and all-around ace, Chris Newton is here to kick things off and talk all things horror. Chris Thank you so much for being here, and before we begin, I would love to hear more about your music, your book, and of course your amazing show, Morningside FM.
0: Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be on Death by DVD. Now, we've spoken a couple of times on Morningside FM, which you mentioned, uh, and I'm sure most listeners can guess from the title Uh, and the fact that we're discussing a Don Coscarelli film today uh, is a phantasm podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things phantasmagorical and philosophical and uh, just really diving into those films. And you and I have had some fantastic uh, discussions uh, on phantasm uh two and phantasm 1999 the unmade script so it's, uh, i like to to go obscure and i hope that we'll talk much much more phantasm in the near future and um yeah when i'm not uh doing morningside fm i have another podcast called the book of breakfast where we just talk a different a completely different book each month sometimes it's horror books sometimes it's sci-fi sometimes it's comedy it's just whatever takes our fancy um yeah, and I'm in a band called Discord, or Discord UK, on most streaming things. It's kind of like, you can, we call ourselves seaside punk, which isn't a genre at all. It's just because we're from Blackpool in Northwest UK, and that's by the sea. So some someone called us seaside punk on a poster, and we thought, hey, let's go with that. But um, yeah, if you like kind of uh, old-school... Uh, political punk we're we're the band for you or or if not yeah i do bits of god i do too much don't i know i come to say it all out loud and i write as well yeah um mainly horror uh, as as harry mentioned my latest novel the filed Witch, is a sort of folk horror based in 17th century lancashire inspired by real local legends and uh, i'm currently uh, co-writing another horror novel which i'm not allowed to talk about at the moment but um Yeah, follow Safety Pin Publishing on social media and all will be revealed in the near future.
1: And I'll be sure to post that on all of our social media just to plug your your writing even more. I just got a copy of The Filed Witch. I've not begun reading it yet, but I'm really excited to. And I heavily encourage, I will whore anything out I want to on this show. (laughs) Go buy the fucking book. If you're listening to this show, you can spend the money. (laughs) Go buy the book. Support independent horror. That's one of the most important things you can do. And kind of we're going to, I'm sure at some point I'll bring it up. We'll we'll get more into supporting horror and indie horror because that's kind of what Masters of Horror is, that it's a show created yeah. by the, the great Mick Garris, who himself is a master of horror, where he kind of gave a lot of his friends who weren't working as steadily at the time a chance to do some work, and his friends happen to be the greatest horror directors of all time, and as you mentioned, we're going to be discussing... We're doing the show in chronological order, so we are starting at number one, but this is a Don Coscarelli episode. It's about a short film he made. Well, I don't even like calling them short films. I, I feel they're movies. They're they're an actual- Yeah. Uh,
0: an, a, a whole Feature effort. length.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an hour long, but you've got a, a, a real movie involved in it, and his is called mm. Incident on and Off a Mountain Road, written by Joe Lansdale, who isn't a master of horror, but is- Definitely a master of the English language and Mm. just a beautiful writer. His prose is insane. And some of the most successful works of Don Coscarelli's life, well, not some of them, just one, but Bubba Hotep was also written by Joe Lansdale. Yeah, Steven Romano was the screenwriter for this too, so you've got a lot of regulars with the Phantasm universe itself. Steven Romano did the Phantasm comic book uh very very loved in the phantasm world i think
0: you know there's a feeling of the gang back together on this isn't there with with those creative minds behind it um and i'm so glad that you asked me to do this episode with you not just for an opportunity to chat with you again but um and at the the risk of losing all my uh fan that's ph fan credibility i'd never seen this and it wasn't for want of trying um i was so excited when i heard about this series as, as a concept way back in in the in the 2000s um and it's never been available in the uk where i am uh um, it never got a, a a dvd release that we could play over here uh and tantalizingly on amazon and on shudder and things it's there it's listed but when you click on it it always says not available in your country um and so you messaged me and said, do you want to discuss incident on and off a of mountain road with me? And, and my first, my instant reaction was, oh my God, yes. And I was, I was flattered and honored that you'd asked. But then of course my uh, second reaction was, but I can't cause I haven't seen the thing. And then I just checked on the off chance. Like I, I don't suppose someone's just, put it on youtube and there it was in all its glory and it was a really it was a high quality upload as well so if you hadn't have asked me i probably because i'd I'd given up almost thinking i'd ever get a chance to see this so it's very strange for me you know because i i'm so used to talking about phantasm and so many of other so many other of don's works um you know you mentioned boba Hotep and obviously John dies at the end and even the more obscure things like Kenny and Company Jim the world's greatest like I've still got my Beastmaster VHS um, but this was the one that slipped away I'm not uh, I'm no expert on this and I only saw it for the first time what two months ago but it was great it was absolutely fantastic I stayed up late turned all the lights off I had a pack of dosecchi, which, uh, for the uninitiated, is the uh, official slash unofficial beer of Phantasm. Uh, not that this is a Phantasm movie, but, you know, it's done, and it was, it was so wonderful to finally experience this. And I don't know uh, if you want to get down to it right away, but it was not at all what I expected, and that's all I'll say. But what about you? When did you first see this?
1: I actually saw it for the first time in 2005 that I I was uh, wow. fairly younger. I mean it was 17ish years ago at this point. And mm. I can't I don't know if I was a junior or a sophomore in high school. I just I can't remember which, but it was I was overwhelmed with excitement and I happened to know at the time one of the writers for a later episode, uh, the one Joe Dante did Dale Bailey. So there was a lot of buzz mm. around it coming out knowing somebody involved. But for me, I was I, I hadn't just started my horror journey, and I had started watching movies uh, like Lucio Fulci and Dario Argento, I'd seen uh, Driller yeah. Killer. You, know, you, you, you start to feel a little bit more advanced, and I was just enamored with the idea of the masters and who they were, I was still, not that I'm not anymore, but I was a very much hardcore John Carpenter fan, so it was oh, I was yeah, just yeah. enamored, and uh, my mom saved up, she was a waitress at the time, and saved up tips for months, to get us Showtime so we could watch it when it came oh, on. And wow. it was, even though it's funny looking back at some of the episodes that I really loved then, I don't like as much now. I just remember we yeah. had a very small uh, Cathode TV and would sit down and make popcorn. <laughs> and it was, I was just so taken aback by it and uh, the idea of mainstream horror and it being on this channel. And uh, a thought I had earlier today was I feel. A lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have seen, like, Stuart Gordon's works or even Don Coscarelli's were exposed to it. Just this massive audience that was never there before. And the idea behind what Mick was doing, pretty much getting his friend's work, uh, is is just beautiful because they're almost lost gems. And I I remembered the show from 2005. And when the concept came up that we're going to do one episode each on all of them, I had forgotten who a lot of the directors were and just knew Okay, this, somebody's going to appear yeah. at this point in time. And when I sat down, I didn't want to pay attention to credits, and it, it it's very hard to do so. But after the third episode mm. or so, I gave this up. I was trying to watch them without acknowledging who the director was, so I could pick it. And this one, out of the <laughs> the before I started, just okay, I this I can't do this. I'm walking out of the room, like peeking at the TV to see if the credits have ended and shit. <laughs> but this one was it hit me because it didn't at first at all feel like the The body of work of Don Coscarelli, and it's one of those things just like Phantasm that once I started thinking about it over and over and over again, I, God, this could almost be part of the phantasm universe <laughs> it It does fit in oh wow,
0: wow, I can't wait to unpack that I mean there are there, are, there it has the kind of the road element and almost like an inverse in a way of the thing that we i apologize to any listeners by the way who want to know about masters of horror but aren't phantasm fans because with that being don's baby and we're both such huge fans we are going to keep straying i think into phantasm but i'll try not to but um but just very briefly, like Reggie, the character of Reggie in Phantasm, is often, uh, you know, will pick up a, a female hitchhiker and 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 try and seduce her, but it usually goes very very badly for him, and she turns out to be some kind of supernatural entity who will try and kill him <laughs> or betray him in some way. And and here we have a sort of inverse of that, where it's um where it's a female character alone on the road who encounters a kind of uh. Peril, shall we say uh, but in a very different way but possibly in a more gendered way it's like um a lone you know female driver who's been in this accident who's then preyed upon by this kind of predatory male figure it's interesting there is a, a kind of strange parallel there so um are we assuming that the listeners have seen this or do we want to give a bit of a plot synopsis for them
1: I don't see any harm doing a synopsis. I, I have the worst problem of jumping in and then realizing, oh, I did the spoilers first. Sorry. <laughs> so it's always wonderful having a guest to catch that. So um, but yeah, we're just jumping into the idea of the story. It's a woman traveling alone at night and she finds a car abandoned on the side of the road. She stops to assist this person as an attacked by what I would call a monster. it's It's a six mm. foot nine, seven yeah. foot tall man, his face is. Like the moon, he's called the the moon face character, (laughs) and he he begins to chase her through the woods. And we have these flashback sequences where we learn about our lead character's life and how she's gotten into this situation. And this all, for me, is where I I find a comparison between this story and the Phantasm universe. That the Phantasm this universe Phantasm rather is based in pain and memories and getting Mm -hmm. older and changing and we have this flashback element here but one thing that always remains true with especially the first phantasm is you don't really know if any of it actually happened and by the time we get to the end of this story I don't think it matters if it happened or not that we were given something that could have been an actual reality but it definitely could have been you could call it PTSD, survivor's guilt. Yeah, it's it's really well mixed in that thin line that Don Coscarelli travels of is it real or is it a memory or is it fiction or yes. And yeah. and it's 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 a horror show, so it's not a very philosophical idea until you really start breaking the nut down and looking at it and looking at what the there's so many comparisons between the memories of the character and what they're going through where you start to wonder is this real. Or was yes, this an entire yeah. fight for survival? And I'll avoid spoilers for a little while, but the end of this really makes you question. That's where I start realizing, oh man, yeah, this yeah. might this is a euphemism, isn't it? Uh-oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's a very difficult film to discuss without spoiling, I think, because most of the interesting things come from the ending when it's sort of applied in hindsight. And... With a lot of things like, you know, uh, you and I recently discussed the script to Phantasm 1999 over on Morningside FM and that was something that we've both kind of known about for a long time, almost a kind of semi-legendary fabled thing that uh, when you've anticipated something for over a decade and you finally get to read it or see it, it's very hard for something to, to live up to your expectations in that way and in a sense there was an element of that with the uh, incident in the sense that I I wasn't expecting it to be you know a phantasm film or anything like that but I didn't quite know what I was expecting but I, I, I was expecting a great horror show which which it is and it's probably more overtly horror than a lot of other stuff that Don has done in terms of the the gore and the the, the threat um even in things like phantasm uh, the threat seems almost uh, fantastical in, in a kind of you know almost fairy tale way whereas the threat here is very immediate and very real and you think this person is is in quite serious danger and this the, you know moonface has killed before it's not long uh until she finds the corpses of his previous victims uh displayed quite uh barbarically but in spite of that it's um it, you know say it's only an hour long and it's quite concise uh it's, it's a well-told story and I think it kind of benefits from being quite lean in terms of it only has about four characters in it but four proper characters and uh you know it's a fairly simple story so I came away from it initially and I won't say that I was disappointed because I wasn't at all but I came away from it thinking okay that was just a kind of fairly straightforward horror whether you want to call it a feature film or a uh, a lengthy <laughs> television episode, whatever uh, you know a, a fairly straightforward horror show. but it was afterwards the more I replayed it in my mind and as as you mentioned, this is very heavily inspired by the ending. The more you reflect upon it, the, the film kind of changes uh, and it definitely when you rewatch it it's a it's a very much a different film on on second viewing because of, of how you perceive certain elements of it, especially those flashback scenes.
1: Yeah, it has a very almost EC Comics Tales from the Crypt ending. Uh, it's a gotcha ending for sure, but it is yeah. remarkable in the sense that it, it almost complements everything you just saw and then forces you to reestablish everything you just saw. And, uh, yeah. and no insult to the other episodes, because there are some great ones. Uh, Takashi Miike even does an episode in the series, so you really have some masters. Coscarelli's is the only one that makes me really think and really makes me evaluate Mm -hmm. it. The other ones are complimentary. They're horror pieces. They're great. And we've we've neglected, as huge Phantasm fans, to bring up one of the proper cast members of this is Angus Scrim.
0: Well, yeah. You see, I wasn't sure if that classed as a spoiler or not because, bizarre as this may seem, uh, I didn't know Angus was in it until, infuriatingly, about a week before you contacted me about this. Don posted uh, an image of Angus from Incident on and Off a Mountain Road and captioned it as such. I thought, oh, I never knew. So if only I hadn't seen that post, Uh, as naive as this sounds, because Angus pretty much crops up in everything Don does. I loved his cameo in John Dies at the end. Um, But yeah, I think uh, the arrival of Buddy would have been a real shock to me. But in some ways, it still was a shock, even though I I was expecting Angus. And I'd seen the, the poster or the cover or whatever you want to call it i'd seen Moonface so i knew that the antagonist was this kind of i mean it's Im- he seems to be a man in the sense that there's nothing overtly supernatural about him but he, like you say he's a monster he's so freakishly tall and weird looking and evil like that guy's a monster i don't know but that again that's um i love the fact that nothing is really explained he's more just a kind of a force really an, an elemental force and then when she's imprisoned, uh, presumably waiting to be horribly murdered, uh, as 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 we've seen his other victims were, she's imprisoned with somebody called Buddy. Who, uh, even though I knew Angus Grim was going to be in it, I did not expect him to appear in that way or be that kind of character. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I almost can envision Coscarelli sitting in his office, maybe spinning in his desk chair, wondering, should I call Reggie? Should I call Angus? Who should I call for this role? And and he said, and I, I, I uh, have thought about this for a while, trying to place out who Reggie could be. And Ethan Embry plays, we're going to get, I guess, into a little bit spoiler territory and personal with the plot. But yeah, as yeah. this woman has tried to help somebody on the side of the road, she's become attacked by Moonface. And she has survival mm. skills, and we start flashing to memories of her and her boyfriend, or fiance, rather, played by the great Ethan Embry, uh, an uh, awesome child star that was, uh, I think, in a lot of, uh, I, I don't want to say older people, but we're both in our 30s. We kind of grew up with mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. Ethan Embry movies, and then suddenly he yeah. disappeared and came back. And he started going bald and doing horror films, and he's great. Yeah, he, it's it's very surprising, <laughs> and it always takes me a minute. I'm like, who is that? I know that person from. Yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> Ethan Embry. And it's never really pointed out in the story, but he is a, a quote unquote survivalist. Uh, he's former military. Yeah. He uses the term "mud people" at one point, so I'm taking it that he is quite the bigot. Uh, you know, in modern yeah. times, it's funny. This is 2005. So this is for the United States during the Bush administration. There's a huge mm. amount of Islamophobia going on. Not like anything's changed at all, and it's very similar to times uh, what we're what we have going on in the United States now. These far right uh, gangs and people like the Proud Boys and things that are yeah, are yeah. militant. They go out into the woods. They're training, and that's overall. No one is outing and saying this I was a little disappointed that Coscarelli didn't go more charged at the subject matter of who these guys are but I read the Joe Lansdale short story and it's it's very much word-for-word word in a lot of places and I think very, it's a point yeah. that you realize well he's you know taught her all of this insane stuff from his surviving survivalist camps and is impo- and you learn through the, these flashbacks that she is a, a terrible victim of mental abuse, physical abuse. he's pretty much mm-hmm, insane mm-hmm. and forcing this this lifestyle on top yes. of, of her. So now she's got this like double thing going on of she's being chased and then she has all this guilt and uh, I don't know if it's survivor's guilt that's improper of me to say but you by the end of the story have this open translation of if all of this happened, it doesn't matter because one thing certainly, definitely happened and could everything you've just seen been a metaphor for that i don't care and that's that's really the power of don coscarelli that it's not bad writing it's Mm -hmm. not bad storytelling he told the story in such a vague dreamlike manner that by the end of it you you're almost reeling of i gotta watch it again and i actually i hadn't seen this since it came out and i've now watched it three times and it's the only one that I can honestly say it is pleasurable. It's there's like every other Coscarelli movie, you can definitely watch this over and over again. And it's I didn't think of it until I watched it this last time, but there's so much going from a survival quest into this movie that I did not think oh, about. That's my, yeah, my one yeah, overlooked Coscarelli yeah. film. I I always forget he made that movie. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I need to go back and, and rewatch that. I think I've not seen that since the '90s. I don't think, but um, but yeah, I you sent me the the short story by Joe Lansdale that this was based on, and I somehow found the time to read it this afternoon. I think I tore a hole in the space time continuum uh, in doing so. But uh, and I was surprised by, like you say, how incredibly faithful the adaptation is and i sometimes think that's a strength in adapting a short story rather than a novel because with a novel there's so much you've got to you know prune or or change or you know streamline with a short story you can really really kind of pad it out and and embrace it and you know really give it the attention it deserves and and don's been so respectful to the source material i say don and obviously um steven romano as well in adapting it for screen but i'd just like to. Um, I made a note of a couple of passages that really stood out to me. Uh, I know we're here to talk about the, uh, the movie, but uh, in terms of what you were saying about the character of Bruce, and again, he is kind of explicitly called a survivalist in the story, and I like that to be clear about, you know, what kind of person he is. And it says, uh, It was silly. It was every little boy's fantasy, living by your wits, with gun and knife, and owning a woman. She had been the woman. At first, Bruce had been kind enough, treated her with respect. He was obviously on the male chauvinist side, but originally it had seemed harmless enough, kind of old-world charming. But when he moved them to the mountains, that charm had turned to domination, and the small crack in his mental state widened until it was a deep, dark gulf. I thought, yep, that's their relationship, summed up.
1: And in my sort of disappointment that they didn't get more political, that really sums it up without the need to dive into politics. I personally always have that problem. If I can start an argument with something I don't like, I'm going to, and I don't... Mean to, but it's yeah. just, you know, okay, <laughs> survivalist, and they shaves his head. I see what you're saying here. And you know, it's not like an episode yeah. of Oz. You don't have to have the swastika tattoos. You can understand. And there's a lot of grace in the depiction of what you're seeing, that she's surviving in the woods. She's fighting Moonface. She's setting up snares. And then it'll flash to this personal battle where she, where she's doing the same thing. It's just all mental. Mm. She's setting up snares. She's trying to escape until there's a real great crescendo where you have her fiance angry with her enough to hand her a knife and tell her, you can do this. You've always been a loser. Mm-hmm. You've always been a mm-hmm. failure, and he gets cut. But it's more than just a physical yep. cut. He has lost uh, a piece of his dominance because she tells him, I'm going to leave mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And he, I love what he says back to her. She goes, I'm sorry. And he goes, well, everybody's sorry for something. And that's his attitude. That's the type of person. <laughs> yeah, He's, it's yeah. not even sardonic. It's just this, oh, woe is me, poor me thing. Yeah. And in, in yeah. all of this, too, it's we're, it's all set pieces. Like, none of this was filmed in the real woods. Mm. This cabin isn't real. And I, I've always wondered per episode what the budget was on Masters of Horror. But it really works for me in this. I don't know. It's like you've got this great rain sequence, and it's definitely a rain machine. They're just Probably got sprinklers Mm -hmm. on the ceiling pouring everything down, but it adds into this very dreamlike fact of what we're watching, that it's very closed off, it's very set-like, it it feels almost like daytime television, but when you get to the end Mm -hmm. of the story, it's this like, well, your memories are never quite exactly what they seem to be. And as as Phantasm fans, if you've seen that movie series, by the time you get to the fourth movie, you're like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you doing to me? I have no idea what's going on. But that's kind of, yeah. that's the integrity of that story. And I don't think everything Don does comes back to Phantasm, but this one, it it's not it's not maybe the universe. That's a bit wrong of me to say, but it's got that feeling of, Even something like Moonface and uh, you were discussing Mm. that he is quite monstrous and in the story Lansdale gave him a much more human idea and you find out that his Mm -hmm. teeth are like silver caps and that he's just big and bald and Coscarelli managed to turn that into more of a nightmare and a composite of yeah I think what her husband is because when you look at the character Mm -hmm. he's wearing like BDU military style stuff and he's got his pants tucked into combat boots he's got the shaved head that i i feel so much of what we actually see is this uh composite of her guilt and you're wondering well what has she got to feel guilty about and then the story ends <laughs> and i don't i don't think she should feel guilty but what we have seen no, is a translation no. of what happens and that's a hard thing to say trying to stay spoiler free because you're writing a line yeah. of saying maybe somebody deserved something bad happening to them. But what we've been presented with on screen, you really can't feel that bad. <laughs> you, know, you don't. And the Lansdale story was much worse. It was r- th- that I oh, you're God, you're, yeah. you're cruising so steady throughout the story. Then you get to that last bit and it's like, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez.
0: <laughs> Although I, I like the way that Coscarelli did it visually, actually, because they, they're both uh, kind of sucker punch. Um, but in some ways, yeah, this is difficult to to discuss without spoilers, but just going back to the, uh, the, the beginning of the story that coming in, you know, completely fresh and not having any real, you know, preconceptions, I didn't know where it was going at first because you, so she's on this perilous bend in the road. Um, and we kind of assume that it's a dangerous stretch of road and that's kind of why Moonface, is near there because he knows that it's it's out in the sticks and people will crash and they'll be vulnerable and he can drag them off and do god knows what to them. Um, and because there's the the other woman who is involved in the accident too, who doesn't fare quite as well as Ellen does. But then, yeah, so when she realizes she has to run away from this, you know, let's call him a monster, but like say a monster who a kind of uber uber macho monster, like he said with his his fatigues and his, his shaved head. And um, but then we get the flashbacks to her. Husband, who even when it portrays the early days of their relationship, when they seem to genuinely be in love with each other, or rather, she's fallen in love with an idea of him without realizing what what he truly is. Um, he's presented, you know, as 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 a a positive force at first, in a way, because oh, here she is. She's alone. She's stranded. She's she's being pursued. And and you get this, ah, but wait, she has all these skills, and the person who taught her, you know, the person who's equipped her with these skills that she's going to use to get out of this perilous situation is this husband. So he's almost presented as a kind of mentor, I don't want to say hero, but, like, we're, we're introduced to him as, like, he's a good guy. But then, as you say, as as the flashbacks progress... And but I didn't I didn't really accept him as the good guy from the off because I thought okay I know I know what kind of person this is and I don't like it and a, a part of my brain was almost a little bit worried you know like where what's the message of this film like where's it going <laughs> which is quite funny when when you find out where it is going and then you know the relationship sours and again we're really heading into to spoiler territory now and there's like actually quite a horrifically brutal rape scene in in the in the film which i was not expecting in terms of like i thought they would imply it but they really show like how toxic he is as a character and how he comes to just completely want to dominate her and control her and own her in every aspect of of you know like 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 the quote from the book like he wanted to own a woman and uh, yeah to say he's dislikable is uh, (laughs) a huge understatement
1: i think you needed some form of justification And it was a great translation between Lansdale. I thought he was not overtly grisly, but it was shocking that it was like, Mm -hmm. you know, my Mm -hmm. mouth is open while reading it. Wow. And then there's a return to what happens after this rape. And I kind of wish that had shown up in Don's a little bit, but it almost Mm. seems too graphic for him. And he's done a great deal of graphic violence in his career, but there's almost like... Even in Phantasm, there's kind of a stooge-esque quality to it that this giant sphere will hit someone mm-hmm, in their mm-hmm. head and then the blood is squirting. It's horrible, but it's kind of... Yeah. It's, it's light and funnier than I think
0: most violence. It's fantasy, you know? It's not... Yeah. But, but there's some graphic gore in, in this, especially. Uh, and it, But there's, um you know, drill bits again, and I thought <laughs> there's a, a little bit of Phantasm there. I thought, what is it with Don and, and drill bits?
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the, the method that Moonface uses is d- taking the eyes out of people, and I find this so counterproductive because we get a quote from Angus Scrim of, well, he's got to drive the cars a long, long way from here so nobody finds it. Then when Moonface comes back, he turns his machine on which has sirens and red and flashing lights, and it's
0: what the yeah, fuck? It's, soap is it's
1: really counterproductive. Like, wouldn't I mean, a quiet one, I guess? I don't know, but it's that's mm. the only kind of unexplained thing is there's this bizarre ritualistic method to the killing where the eyes are removed, but it's not like yeah. he's scooping them out with a spoon. There's a very intricate machine <laughs> that, that does all of this, and you got to have something, yeah. but again, it all comes straight. From the pages of, of Joe Lansdale, so it's mm, mm. it's it's a wonder kind of picking because that was I guess, I mean I don't know if it's written in stone anywhere, but it seems like throughout the entire stories you've throughout the entire series rather, you've got a master of horror, a very famous writer or a very successful horror short, and then mm, a lot mm. of the times the screenwriter, was pretty successful. That I know Sam Hamm yeah. from the Batman movie wrote one of the screenplays. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Toby Hooper's, I believe it's actually Richard Matheson Jr. or Richard Matheson the second, who did the screenplay based on his father's uh, novella. So you've got a, a a great mix of all of these things coming together. And you had pointed out with Romano and his excellence with doing this with mm-hmm. Don Coscarelli, it's it's that's a dream for me is those guys to make a feature length film. But this being the only magic that they've got to create together. It's such a difficulty to make those pages happen, and as vividly as mm. they do, that there are parts of the film where she's running through the woods, and you can almost feel that leaf or that twig hit her in the face. Oh and yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's such a bizarre universe to live in because you don't, you you really question your own morality at the end of it, and I don't feel that there's many mm-hmm. others in the series that can that can hold that power. And again, I don't mean to dog, this is the first episode, and I'm already talking trash on 12 more. (laughs) It's not that this is the best one, but I I do kind of think this is the best one, and it's not just my constant love and never-dying love of Don Coscarelli. I I can't help but not get this out of my mind. It really stains you where you're wondering about. Yeah, it really does,
0: yeah. I, I, I think we're going to have to get into spoiler territory soon. But before we do, I just wanted to go back to... um, I love how, allegedly, how Masters of Horror came about. I think Don mentions it in his memoir, True Indie, um, that they were all out for a meal together. The first Masters of Horror dinner, Uh, Larry Cohen, Uh, uh Robert Parigi, if I'm pronouncing that right, John Carpenter, Bob Burns, John Landis, Toby Hooper, Mick Garris... Stuart Gordon, Don Coscarelli, Guillermo del Toro, and Bill Malone. And uh, I'm sure, didn't the, the name come from, they're in a restaurant, and one of the other tables complained about how raucous they were being. And I think it was Guillermo del Toro sent a note of apology. Did he buy them some drinks or something and said, with apologies from the masters of horror? <laughs>
1: And then from that point, I really don't know where the direct line to the show comes in. And I I believe it's more rumor than anything, but I feel Mick was just trying to get a lot of his buddies that hadn't gotten mainstream work in a while some work.
0: Which is really sweet. And it reminds me, and I I don't even know if this is true, but a story I heard a lot um, about the inspiration for finally getting Phantasm 3 done was that Don saw Reggie working on a construction site and thought, how can this guy be out of work? I need to write a part for him. I've never actually checked whether or not that's true, but it's a lovely story.
1: Yeah, I would like to, to firmly believe that's true, though, and it sounds like Don Coscarelli as a person. But, I mean, you gotta... <laughs> yeah. a, Mick Garris, I think, is so overlooked himself as a master of horror that his body of work, film-wise, isn't that big, but when it comes to TV production, he knows every person on the planet. And you look at the core yes. group of people in this uh, first dinner, like Larry Cohen... He started really fading off in the early 1990s and had gone back and had tried to do a couple more black exploitation films. But his brand of horror in production just wasn't made anymore. And you had uh, companies like mm-hmm. Canon who were going out of business. So many of these people were, were, were just guns. They could get behind a camera, pull that trigger, and shoot and shoot and shoot. And the universe changed. The world changed. So... This stepping stool for a lot of these people were some of their final works. I mean, Coscarelli did some stuff throughout wow. the early two thousands. Bubba Hotep, I believe, came out in two thousand and six, or might it be two thousand and four? It's either the year before this or the year after this. But he hasn't gone. I on thought it was
0: long. earlier than that. You know, I thought it was two thousand and three. I could, I could be wrong. But it's, um, it's
1: somewhere no, in. The I had it in my head part. it was earlier.
0: Uh, I found I found the passage and I'm going to have to read it out because it's it's so great. Um, Better than my garbled retelling. And this is from Don's memoir, True Indie. Some might say that the moniker applied to this group of directors is unseemly and smacks of Hollywood ego. Not so. Let me tell you where the name came from. At the first dinner, there was a table nearby with the family of a young woman celebrating her birthday. It was getting a bit raucous over at the director's table, and the laughter and hilarity probably impacted her birthday dinner in a negative way. At the end of the evening, as this woman's birthday cake was being delivered to her table, Guillermo interceded. He jumped up, and with a deep, chivalrous bow and tongue placed firmly in cheek, profoundly announced to her, Please accept our felicitous best wishes to you on your birthday from the Masters of Horror. The woman blushed, and we all burst into cheers, and the name stuck. What a, what a wonderful little anecdote.
1: Yeah, that's that's the perfect uh, idea of these people, too. It's an odd thing to wonder, but I, I wonder what everyone ordered that first night. I don't I don't know if it's just me that would like to see <laughs> what everyone ate. Like, what did Coscarelli eat? Where are they eating yeah. at? I'm sure a vegan restaurant somewhere in L.A., because Mick Garris has been a, a lifelong vegan.
0: Yeah, well Don's vegetarian. I, I know that much from the book. And of course his daughter is um Chloe Coscarelli, the famous vegan chef. Oh wow. I've got a couple of her cookbooks down in my kitchen
1: actually. I had no idea. that I'm, I'm going to buy one now.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh they, it's great, some great stuff. Yeah. Her um she does a sort of spicy artichoke hash brown recipe, which is fantastic. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Like all like authentic, like um Italian. It's like her whole thing was like I grew up in a in uh in an Italian family, and it was all about hearty home cooked meals and she's kind of like basically veganized them uh and yeah absolutely fantastic recommend it that's a that's a digression isn't it but
1: <laughs> it's not a bad one though
0: <laughs> although Yeah, I suppose it seems inevitable because this is, you know, the Masters of Horror came about from a dinner party. So, yeah, we've got to talk food.
1: (laughs) I've just always wondered where, at at what point, were these either assigned to the directors or were they able to come forward and say, well, there's this Joe Lansdale story I really want to do. And that's almost uh, a shame at this point that we don't have a better release of this. And as you were speaking earlier, there's not... Anything, I mean, you could find the original box sets and they run a hundred, mm. two hundred dollars on eBay. There haven't been any repressings, and many of these masters are still alive and are able to talk about it because the construction of the story itself, uh, pairing these two, it's uncanny how perfectly the work ended up being. And as a product, just trying oh, to yeah. get if, if that's the true story that Mick was just trying to get his friends work, this product should have I feel sold much more successfully than it did (laughs) yeah it's a and it lasted two seasons and then eventually was canceled by Showtime and the third season run ran on um I saw I don't remember which cable network but it was called Fear Itself and it's a firm Mm. continuation but it's just a weird kind of glimpse into horror history because when this ended, a lot of these guys' careers have just stopped also because John Carpenter ended in the 90s yeah. with Ghost of Mars. He hasn't moved forward. Toby Hooper was doing some weird stuff in the 90s and, and early 2000s before he stopped and unfortunately passed away. Miike, I think, is the one of the few masters who has nonstop worked. He puts out, like, four mm-hmm. movies a year. It's impossible to keep up with him.
0: I must say, though, I, I, I really enjoyed last year's... Um cabinet of curiosities which was sort of presented by guillermo del toro um but i was very disappointed that don wasn't invited to direct a segment of that i think that could have been really interesting don coscarelli taking on lovecraftian horror
1: yeah i'd like to see don come back at any point for anything even if it's another john dies at the end film which i loved i thought that was a terrific film i i strongly stand by the statement that don coscarelli has never made a bad movie
0: oh yeah yeah definitely Um, but so shall we discuss the ending of Incident on and off a mountain road then?
1: Yeah, I think we're finally safe for spoiler territories. And again, it's a 17 year old show, guys. So try not to get too angry that we spoiled it. Somebody got
0: mad. Unless you're in the UK. Go and watch it on YouTube immediately.
1: (laughs) Somebody got mad because in the first five minutes of our Halloween ends episode, we talk about how the movie ends. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Wait, i'm sorry at least people are using our.com website to send me emails i love it i'll get excited even yeah. if it's hate mail so so spoilers people, well, are first coming of all, up it's called cool.
0: halloween ends what yeah what do you think is going to happen secondly it's halloween you know it it before we know it it's going to be um 2028 and there'll be another remake and who cares like michael myers will keep coming back and back and back even <laughs> no matter how little we care <laughs>
1: Stop getting mad at me over fucking Halloween. Just stop it, okay, everyone? <laughs> it's a, it's enough. Take your anger out on David Gordon Green or Danny McBride, not me. <laughs> it's the wrong guy. I... <laughs> so spoilers are open, yeah.
0: Yeah, they come in.
1: I believe anything can happen to anyone, anywhere at any time I learned that when I was a kid are you always this charming on a first date? you've always got to expect the unexpected Hello. that's what'll save you when some wacko wants to put the hurt on you balance is everything are you hurt?
0: Just as crazy as they are. And they don't know
1: what to do with you. What happens if crazy doesn't work? Oh, crazy always works. What if it doesn't? Yeah. When everything else fails you, try anything. Where are we? You've come home. Jesus! you've always got to do the unexpected
0: so ellen defeats moonface and we think thank god she can get get onto it she was on her way to her mother's wasn't she uh, and when she gets back to her car, she opens the trunk. See, I was very conscientious of uh, the fact that most of the listeners will be US there, and I said trunk and not boot. <laughs> but now I've had to <laughs> I've had to clarify. She opens the trunk, and we see that stuffed in there is Bruce's
1: dead body. And not only that, she then takes Bruce's body down to Moonface's cabin. And commits him to the same act that he has pur- purported on everyone else by removing his yep. eyes. And he becomes Uncle Brucey because there's this weird familial angle. It shows up more in the Lansdale story, but through Angus yeah. Scrimm's character. I'll call
0: you Uncle Brucey, yeah.
1: And you know when Angus is introduced that there's something fucking wrong with him and he he might yeah. he appears to be chained up but his dialogue he's he's the only survivor of all of these atrocities and he's the one that lets us know that he doesn't like sexy stuff and that some of the other girls were mm-hmm. really naughty and they deserved it that's what always hints me off as he says I kind of yeah, feel they deserved yeah. it and it's like don't no, stop talking to that guy don't talk to him anymore he's yeah. not good <laughs>
0: And what is going on with Buddy? Because then we find out that he isn't really shackled. He's pretending he's in prison there, but he seems to be free. And yet he's also afraid of Moonface. It's very, very odd. But again, just going back to the story in terms of what you're saying about that the corpses, I'd I'd love to read another section. Actually, just that I uh, bookmarked his description of of Moonface's victims. "'A withered corpse in a ballerina's tutu and slippers, "'rotting grapefruits tied to her chest "'with cord to simulate breasts, "'her legs arranged in such a way "'that she seemed in mid-dance up on her toes, "'about to leap or whirl. "'The real horror was the children. "'One pathetic little boy's corpse, "'still full of flesh, "'and with only his drilled eyes to show death, "'had been arranged in such a way "'that a teddy bear drooped from the crook of his elbow.' A toy metal tractor and plastic truck were at his feet. There was a little girl wearing a red rubber clown nose and a propeller beanie. A green plastic purse hung from her shoulder by a strap, and a doll's legs had been taped to her palm with black electrician's tape. The doll hung upside down, holes drilled through its plastic head so that it matched its owner. It's
1: so fucked up. I really love the baby in the Lansdale story. One of these poor children gets used as a bludgeon, and it's great. You get a glimpse of it, and I I had watched this, then read it, then went back and watched it again to to try and pick up and see a little bit more of that influence, and you do get a brief glimpse of the baby, but when it's weaponized in the story, I felt that that was so much a representation of her idea of this Mm -hmm. uh, modern American family. I'm gonna... Uh, marry somebody I love and we're going to move out to our farm in the country and raise a family yeah. and have kids and using the baby as a weapon as a destructive force is, is dismantling all of those dreams and that's even before we find yes. out yeah, yeah. that she has killed her husband so that it's so much more <laughs> effective at the end of the story, when that trunk opens up, or the boot—I'll call it a boot—we'll have to. What's vice versa? Yeah. <laughs> she pops the boot, and you—you you get this. It's such a wah 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 moment, and it's such a EC mm-hmm. Comics uh, Tales from the Crypt thing, but it's yeah. not the usual gotcha moment where it's like, okay, whatever, this is just desserts. You actually get this awful wash of 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 almost like. Regret? And I think most of what you see in the story is showing this feeling of regret, but you've been rooting for her the whole time, and she's killed someone, so it really makes you question, no matter what, you know, is is, is it wrong to kill your abuser? Is it wrong to kill anyone? Or... Did he fucking deserve it? And that flashes in your mm-hmm. mind for a second. That that second that trunk opens up and he's illuminated. You you're questioning. Oh my god, she's a killer too. But then you can reflect <laughs> on everything she's been through and this metamorphosis and the idea that Moonface is her abuse that she has she has yes. conquered yeah. it. And there's that that flash yes. ends to me and it's like fuck yeah, kill him. <laughs> the only thing Absolutely. I I wonder is she was. Taking, she was going to her mother's house. So, did she like call her mom and say, I got a body in the trunk. We got, you got to help me. <laughs> like, that's the best support system to me. What, well, that's how you do things. Help your kids bury bodies. Oh, yeah. well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> CIA is going to show up at my well, fucking door. In
0: all seriousness, though, what parent wouldn't, you know, if, if, if they're. Their their child married someone who was abusive and physically abusive and sexually abusive, and then they turned up at your house and said, look, they did these terrible things to me, and I I retaliated and I killed them. You'd help them bury the body. (laughs) Unconditional love.
1: Well, at the beginning of the show, I had mentioned, is this a movie? Is this a feature length? And what you had just brought up kind of staples that to, yes, it is, but it could truly be fleshed out. I mean, this could end up being a two-hour product because you have to imagine from the moment they went on their first date to going at the cabin, this is months and months and months of flashbacks. So things like her family Mm -hmm. being aware that she's either not talking to them as much or she has bruises, something's wrong. You have to look at the whole idea that this isn't just one hour. And so much of this, it's not crammed in a bad way, but so much was compartmentalized and put together by Romano and Coscarelli that you get this fluency and and to me it's just really really remarkable at the end of the story that you really feel aghast it's not just a horror yes. ploy she opens the boot and it's like oh well this makes fucking sense and suddenly yes. it clicks in and it isn't
0: you know just a, a a traditional kind of ah the killer's back or a twist or whatever, you know and obviously it goes without saying how much I adore Phantasm, but I know some people don't like the ending of the original film. I love it. I think it's perfect. But, um,
1: if you don't like the ending of Phantasm one, just watch Phantasm four because it's a different ending now. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah.
0: very, Very good point. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and that is a classic example of a, um, everything's fine. Ah, but wait, it's not fine. Um, whereas this is not as straightforward as that it's not just a twist as haha you didn't see this thing coming it's uh, as i mentioned earlier it's, it's a kind of twist that then retroactively changes everything you've seen so far and your opinion on it and and like you say so we know now this character has been in this really awful abusive relationship by this person who's taken away so much of her freedom you know but you know even physically even sort of geographically in terms of uprooting her and taking her to live in the mountains away from her friends and her family and whatever life she knew to have complete control over her and and she's kind of risen up and and fought against that and then suddenly like you say her whole battle with moonface suddenly becomes what metaphorical allegorical or in a supernatural sense is he is moonface like some sort of manifestation of the, this negative force in her life that she's overcome and and again and that's it's only in that moment that the title of of the movie really makes sense it's and it's a i, I think let's explore the title actually because it's really interesting it's um going into it i assumed it referred to something that hap- something that happens you know in a possibly in a domestic setting and something that happens uh off a mountain road incident on and off a mountain road uh, and now we know what those things are. The incident uh, on the mountain road is is her being kind of uh, attacked by by moonface, and the you know the incident off is is her situation with her husband. But it's really in- interesting that it says incident, not incidents, almost implying it's the same incident happening simultaneously. It takes place on and off the mountain road. So are we saying that this whole thing, like let like you say she's murdered her abusive husband and good for her? And she's driving to her mum's house with his body in the boot, and perhaps I don't know. Is it a nightmare? Is it a dream? A hallucination? A fancy? Has she straight out of time wandered into some some bizarre realm where where the, her struggle has has been made flesh? Or what is it? That's but you know what I mean. It almost implies that they're not tangential. They're almost one. It's her struggle against this this oppressive thing. And like you say, it's so great that, that Moonface is almost like a sort of a children's nightmare nursery version of her husband, who was this kind of, you know, right wing, survivalist, you know, Uber macho gun loving psychopath.
1: And it almost makes it incidental at this point if one or the other didn't happen the way that we've seen it on screen because if it is Mm. all some sort of interpretation to her trauma and all the awful things that have happened to her and that Moonface isn't quite real, regardless, she still went through all of that because it would be an interpretation of the actual pain and strife and struggle that she went to or went through rather. The only question really Mm. that's uh, brought up and raised at the end of this is she leaves the body after removing the eyes. But I felt that could also be more of an allegory toward her removing the soul, removing these eyes that stained her and stared at her with hate, and she's left it all behind. Yeah. But it is a perfect ending, because anyone that would investigate or find it would just find him as another rotten body, and she's off scot-free. Another
0: victim of this weird guy, yeah, yeah. But I, I find it interesting, the symbolism of the eyes, um, especially in terms of it, it's almost weird... Uh, in the sense that Moonface has been here for a while. You know, he he's fairly undisturbed. Um, he kind of reminds me and I hesitate to bring this up, but he reminds me of the creature from Jeepers Creepers. And I say, I hesitate to bring that up because obviously, you know, what we know now know about the writer and director
1: of those movies. They're not movies. I like to talk about. Horrible, horrible person, but the first movie person, does have yeah. some cool lore with, with what it stands yeah. for. And it's, it's I think even the, the weirdest thing about the movie is this monster of a man made this monster. And it's like, yeah, well, it's your autobiography, isn't it? You, you are the monster, aren't you?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, but there is something of like th- th- this creature exists on this highway and is preying on vulnerable people. And yet you think, how could he lives there? And he makes a habit of this. How has no one found him yet? How has no one? How has no one heard the fucking
1: siren that he plays when he kills people? Right?
0: Yeah. But then, if you can, you know, the idea of like these two things sort of tangentially happening this 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 isolated case of domestic abuse, um, that people either are blissfully unaware of or turn a blind eye to to me like the symbolism of the eyes comes in there people you know being blinded uh, you know looking away from this suffering
1: Well, the the location, too, is really important in this idea because it's the incident on and off the mountain road, and we establish at the very Mm. beginning after they begin dating that he has this cabin that was built by his father, and now he's moved into it, so we're off the mountain road, and then the same thing happens when Mm. she encounters Moonface, that it's this isolated place, so there's no one to hear her scream. There's no one to hear her when she's yes. being beaten and abused and raped that she's completely out there, mm-hmm. and she screams for help. She's begging for it while Moonface is coming mm-hmm. after her. So you have the, also the duality between those two comparisons of you are off the mountain road regardless. So it's the same mm-hmm, incident, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. it's telling with that title and the verbiage there that it's not incidents whatsoever. And it's I love the questions because you don't need anything else and I I love more to a story I I thought maybe reading Lansdale's version that I would well who's Moonface I want to know where he comes from but the anonymity (laughs) is even more frightening and that's that's a great comparison with the tall man is no matter how you know he comes from somewhere and we know it's red that's it
0: that's it yeah and that's all we want to know really
1: well the, that fear is so real if you were attacked by something like Moonface, i wouldn't be questioning well who are you it no just be <laughs> you just get get the fuck away yeah, run um
0: but also i thought what i do think is interesting um if you take it literally like if this isn't a dream or a, a you know a, a, a hallucination it's not a an An analogy or a metaphor it's literally you know this woman has killed her abusive husband um and i wouldn't you know i would i would hesitate to use the word murder because you know to, to use a key word uh in terms of this film what she does in terms of fighting back against him is survival uh, but she's she's killed this guy
1: in the Lansdale story. I would say it's definitely murder because of how she dispatches yeah. <laughs> him. But in what we get on screen, because man, that here's a big spoiler. He passes out drunk, and she ties him to the bed. And is it a, a log from the fire? I don't remember what she beats him to death with. Yeah. But she beats yeah. him to death with something, and it is... is—I My jaw was dropping like, oh, fuck this. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Jesus shit. <laughs> and its I'm never am yeah. never feeling bad for the guy, but what we get with... No, he's awful. It, Coscarelli yeah. gave it to us a little bit with... Uh, it's gentle, comparatively. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's very different. <laughs>
0: But, um, but if you take all that at face value, uh, it's still, it, it's a really interesting thing to explore. The idea that, back to what I was saying earlier, that she, you know, this guy has been nothing but a negative and destructive force in her life. And yet, some of the things that he introduced her to as a kind of paranoid survivalist, she then does use those skills to set traps and to fight back and to survive. And it got me thinking a lot about, you know, when you have people in your life who, you know, aren't good people, people that you don't speak to anymore, people who are quite toxic or unpleasant or even abusive. And yet, you know, life's not black and white and you can't just say, oh, they were a bad person. Therefore, everything that happened with them w- was terrible. But like But I've known some really awful people in my life who aren't, thankfully aren't in my life anymore. And yet, no matter how i might dislike those people they introduced me to some of my best friends now you know what i mean and it's um and it was it, funnily enough weirdly appropriate sort of mentioning jeepers creepers because i feel that kind of ties into pop culture as well when people kind of uh you know creators uh disgrace themselves or are revealed to have been really awful people and you're left with you know works of art you know films or music or books or whatever, that you grew up loving and now you know that the the, the guy who created it uh is, is 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 dodgy in some way or, or toxic or problematic or whatever word you want to use and you how do you deal with that as an individual to say well you know these things these songs they saved me and they made me and they introduced me to other people how do you compartmentalize that and i felt that there was a big element of that in this film like well yeah he he was awful and i killed him and yet If he hadn't have showed me how to do, you know, set this snare or, you know, how to weaponize my surroundings, I'd probably be dead by now.
1: I think a lot of that is even weaponizing the idea of fear that you you can Mm. go through this idea of even like we were talking about Halloween. Michael Myers is chasing you. He's coming after you. And so often all of these movies, the person just dies. You don't get this yes. the sense of any real life or that these people existed outside of being a character for this specific story. And here it's so rounded and so, so real you can feel an attachment to anyone even if you've not been through... Not anyone, but you can feel an attachment to Ellen, rather, even if you've not been through this situation mm-hmm. because you've survived something in your life. You can yes. you can yeah, yeah. find a, a base of realism with them, and that helps so much with the story when you get to the end because it shocks you so much more because you have become a victim with Ellen. You have felt everything with her, and you are allowed yes. to be part yeah. of her memories, but at the same time, what she has learned... And what we've learned through these memories are just a part of the cycle of abuse. And it, I, I, the, the one thing I've wondered about the ending is if it raises the question, will the abusee become an abuser with her anger? And it almost reminds me, it's a stretch here, speaking of stretch, of the character Stretch and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, that she finally Uh, finishes everything and she just spins around like Leatherface with that chainsaw. I love that (laughs) scene because she is just, she's taken over everything but is fucked. That person is fucked in the head now. They're never going to be okay again. They have, they've just (laughs) conquered cannibals living under the Alamo. But it's a beautiful scene and that moment where she makes him Uncle Brucie and takes his eyes out, I, I see there's a great feeling kind of shared there with you it's it's a yeah well, you it's want a really interesting scene like it's you it's, do you yeah. you almost are now happy about the villain villainization
0: it's really interesting because like you say that Moonface seems a kind of extrapolation or amplification of Bruce uh and yet in that moment where you realize that she that Ellen has killed Bruce and then she does to his body what Moonface does to the bodies of his victims and it's like what what are they trying to say there? It's, it's really interesting. And is it, are they hinting at, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the victim becoming an abuser? That's interesting. I, I don't think it is. I think it's it's kind of almost um, her subverting that energy for want of a better term. The idea that, you know, she has been preyed upon by this kind of, I hesitate to say, like male character, but, you know, this kind of, like, incredibly, toxic masculine predatory character uh but she's overcome that both him and her husband and she's kind of inverting as well i'm gonna now do to you what you have done to others I, yeah, it's but you can take it either way. It's really interesting.
1: I mean, he becomes the victim ultimately at this point because now yeah. his story, his history, everything around him has been erased. He's just another victim of moon face, just another victim of mm-hmm. violence or uh, home violence and things like that. So you can even take a metaphor that just another victim, and that's so often how people are portrayed. And you can't – I mean, I know in the United yeah. States – you can't get a protective order against somebody unless they do something to you,
0: yeah. by which point it's it's too late. It's been done, yeah, 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 it's it's very similar over here, sadly,
1: so I mean, it's it's more of a a, a statement, I think, than anything else. But it's
0: kind of it, there's a deliciousness to it as well in terms of the fact that like you say Bruce is fundamentally just made another victim of Moonface which is kind of ironic given his whole shtick was being a survivalist and being a guy who could make it turn anything into a weapon and survive in a situation and you think, well, actually, you know, maybe if he'd been stranded on that highway, uh, he would have survived Moonface. But um, but he was defeated by somebody that he didn't reckon with, which was, you know, his uh, what the person he wanted to be, his little housewife. But, but actually, she was more dangerous than either of them in the end. And the fact that he's kind of, like you say, to her, any passing person who found that crime scene would say oh yeah this poor guy was was overpowered by (laughs) this uh this monster in the woods and that's kind of the the ultimate insult um and almost mockery of him i think in a strange sort of way i tell you what though they you mentioned the bizarre thing with the siren and the flashing lights and it is it's utterly bizarre why he has that like maybe one of the cars that crashed on that on that corner was a police car and he's one of his victims you know hung up there on those poles it is a police officer and he's stolen the radio and the siren from a cop car who knows but um again if we are taking it to be a bit more abstract and maybe even a kind of delusion sort of allegorical delusion um if, if picture the scene where she is just flipped and she's murdered her husband uh in retaliation for all the Injustices he's subjected her to, uh, and then she's kind of almost out of it. You know, shocked by what she's done, in some sort of catatonic state. And you can imagine this is all playing out in her mind of her overcoming the, the, this monster. Uh, at which point the police pull up, and there's a siren blaring, and the living room of the of her house is doused in in the, in the blue glow of a police flashing light. Is that what that represents in that room where people's eyes are poked out?
1: Or it could be her guilt also. I mean, you could really take a construction of that same thought, that it's her guilt and fear of being caught in a situation like this. Yeah, yeah. It does feel that, that her husband, to me, has become a victim of almost himself. And maybe I'm reading too much into things, but when he mentions that His father took them there when he was a kid. And you get flashes that he was in the military and possibly Mm -hmm. over in the Middle East. Maybe this is a a lineage of abuse that maybe it was perpetuated from Mm -hmm. his father and his father's fathers. And it's his way of of masculinity. This was done to me, so I'm going to do it to Mm -hmm. you. That his way of showing love is suffering and pain. And that, as you were discussing with... These are her memories no matter what the person is. You can't change that even if maybe some of them were good times. All of these things, this visage of hate had some impact otherwise uh, breaking this this kind of perpetuation of abuse that has constantly happened that now he has – I don't know, almost like a child fighting because I I find something almost childlike about the image of Moonface that this is what if if Mm. you were a kid and had an abusive parent, this is what you would picture it as. And in her mind, having been through all this abuse, I kind of feel that there's almost an escapism that a child would form to get out of this. So the police lights coming in and her her real reality while she's facing all of these demons makes perfect sense. And that's what's perfect about I yeah. think this Masters of Horror episode is that you can discuss it to these depths. Like 17 years yes, later yeah. it can still be broken down.
0: Really really yeah and and like I was saying so the first time I watched it I was thinking yeah this is going kind to of straight up horror where she's being pursued by a monster and hopefully she'll get away. But then I say when you get to the end and you realize what's happening with these with these um tangential narratives, you think oh actually it's way more complex than that and again it has the classic coscarelli how much of what i've seen was actually real but, uh, but you're so right in terms of it being like you know a children's drawing um there's a there's an episode of doctor who called fear her i don't know if you've ever seen it. it's a david tennant episode where um uh, a little girl's drawings are coming to life and it's strongly implied that she had an abusive father and she's drawn this kind of horrific like a children's drawing of her father on her bedroom wall, but it's like but he's a monster and then it's sort of coming to life and sort of screaming at her from behind a closed door that he's gonna come and get her. And it's that it's the you know, it's the fear of the nursery. There's something kind of grotesque about it because it's amplified in a child's mind. And yeah, that Moonface does 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 feel like that to a to a degree. Like a, a distortion, almost like not a caricature, but a kind of, you know, a nightmare version of her husband or people like that, you know?
1: Well, we've gone pretty much every direction. I think we could with this. I, we covered so much more ground than I thought we were going to. We got really philosophical. (laughs) We broke it down as if this was all real or if it was a dream and that it always takes me back to phantasm. Was it a dream? It doesn't matter if it was a dream. And that's what I ask myself whenever I watch phantasm. Does it matter if this was a dream? What you have here is a, a, a shocking and I think pure example of post traumatic stress disorder and victim's guilt and surviving. And it asks you at the end of the day does this person need to have guilt? Does it need to, do they need to feel a fear? And you don't know. You don't have a solid answer. And you can interpret it any way you want to. You can say there's a solid answer. For me, personally, I feel when that boot is opened up and you see what has happened, everything has changed. We're upside down now. And it's not wrong. It's not right. And you're left with the credits to think about that. And that's master storytelling. And that's pretty much the same thing Lansdale did with his story before this had become a film. Lansdale's story predating this... I don't think affects anything or changes it because as we discussed earlier, it's even more synonymous with now's political climate and groups and ideologies that we know. It's sort of a timeless story of abuse. And that yeah, happens to be much so. all of Coscarelli's work. Even Bubba Hotep is a timeless story of mm. abuse. They're totally elder abuse in that place, run by Reggie mm. Bannister. I know we've discussed this on Morning Sight FM, but there is something charming about all of Coscarelli's work has either Reggie... Or Angus in it, and if you don't get one, you get the other. And I think, I think the only one that doesn't have either of them is Beastmaster.
0: Yeah, right. We need to go back and edit one or both of them into it. (laughs) I think Dom was very much trying to do something completely different after Phantasm. He said, you know, he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a horror director, and you know, Angus had been in Jim, the world's greatest, uh, and Reggie had been in both jim and kenny and company so i think you can really tell that he's he's trying to assert himself as a, a man of many many talents with a you know a, a huge toolbox to, to dip into and I, you know you respect that but um i think perhaps he mellowed a little bit with age and thought you know i just want to get the gang back together
1: Yeah, it was curious why he couldn't pull everyone back into this, but I guess Reggie being the abusive husband wouldn't have been the best casting in the world, and I don't know if Reggie could play an abusive husband. Uh, He did great, I think it's the Mangler 2 or the Mangler 3, as a very scuzzy guy in that movie, but I just can't see him playing a survivalist, Mm. (laughs) right-wing, abusive husband.
0: No, no. And even if he did, and even if he played it really well, which I'm sure he could have done, we'd have projected Reggie onto him and you know, you'd find yourself loving the character when you're not supposed to. So I'm glad I'm glad they didn't cast uh, Reggie Bannister.
1: And out of all the magic that Coscarelli has created with his career, I think ultimately this is a really pristine piece. This is kind of icing on the cake. It's a short piece and it's not the easiest one to find worldwide. But as a mm a perfectionist and a completist with the career of Coscarelli. I I find it really fits comfortably with all of his work and for me really raises the question where are you, Don? I mean, D- John dies at the end was great, but we need you. You gotta come back. You gotta do something. We we would love more more. I mean anything with Don Coscarelli, even producing. John Carpenter's returning. He's got an anthology TV show very, very similar to Masters of Horror. Uh, many of these awesome directors are gone. The beloved Larry Cohen has passed away at this point, which the world needs Larry Cohen to come back some way or somehow. But Don Coscarelli is out there right now, and he's not behind a camera, yeah. and that's not right. That's not good. Well, that we know
0: of. I mean, on the one hand, you know, Don, he. How old is he now? He must be surely in his early 70s yeah, late 60s early only 70s because he's been around for so long uh he could be enjoying some well earned retirement however um i recently recorded an episode of morningside fm on phantasm forever and we were talking about how good don is with secrecy and the fact that uh, you know ravager was made in secret over the course of what was it seven or eight years so the thing with Don is, if he were working on something at the moment, maybe even something Phantasm-related, we wouldn't know. We would be the last to know. So you never you never quite know, and I hope that he has got something, you know, even if it's simmering in the background, I hope he's working on something.
1: Yeah, at the end here, it really makes me realize, looking at Masters of Horror 2005, and then Sean dies at the end, we've had a full decade without the work of Don Coscarelli, mm. and you know, it's it's not that it's nostalgia that I want pieces of my childhood or teenage years to come back. I thoroughly enjoy the work that Don puts out, and I strongly stand by that he hates Beastmaster, but he's wrong. It's not a bad movie by any <laughs> means. It's fine. His body of work always stands out to me, not even just as a horror fan, that it's it's there's always something beautifully constructive, and you can't just walk away, even like Survival Quest. There are always things that make you mm-hmm. really think about what you just saw, and he is, I, I, yeah. I feel very comparable to somebody like Stuart Gordon. He is a man of, like, Stuart Gordon was, was professed uh, as a stage master and that's what he preferred over anything he was a master of plays and telling stories that way and Don tells these gorgeous beautiful stories almost play like with these weird interjections and dream scenes that you can never quite understand but everything feels like you're watching it on stage and it's just a beautiful translation of old world art into the new and we have so much new technology come on man Don give us some love and I hope we, that's we, what we did something. here I mean we we definitely have shown our love Once more as Don Coscarelli fans Phantasm fans But for the beginning of this series And 12 more episodes coming from Death by DVD This is the The the, the point of all of them now All the episodes have to be this mm-hmm. good It's gonna be hard <laughs> And that's because we <laughs> you had you. The yeah, you You have made this an amazing oh. episode And I, we have covered more, I didn't think of some of these things at all And now my I have to go watch it again i'm so excited yeah, of to course see and
0: yeah that's, that's classic don isn't it every every conversation uh brings up something new and then you will take that with you into your next viewing but no thank you so much for inviting me it's been an absolute pleasure uh, any excuse to, to witter on about horror basically but uh, and but no thank you for truly truly making me a, a don coscarelli completist as i say because <laughs> that was the gap that was the gap in my coscarelli knowledge i'd never seen this film and i have and i'm so glad i have um, because it's going to be i'm going to rewatch it and rewatch it because you never know you never know what's happening and each viewing brings a new interpretation so thank you
1: well, please feel free at any point if there are any more episodes you want to talk about. <laughs> I would love to have you back for anything and any reason. Oh, fantastic. Is there any way that the people out there can find you? We'll, we'll do the beginning again at the yeah. end. We'll share all your <laughs> socials.
0: We'll come full circle. Very, very phantasm. Um, yeah, well, if you want to hear me talk... uh lots lots more about don coscarelli uh, and his works uh, you can follow morningside fm wherever you get your podcasts or check out uh, our instagram page at phantasmpod uh in terms of my other stuff uh, the best place to find my books is safetypinpublishing.co.uk where you can buy some of my uh, horror novels on there and as they follow their social media pages for for news which hopefully will be coming soon about exciting new projects that i can't talk about yet
1: and to make things a lot easier for our audience if you go to www.deathbydvd.com in the next few days there will be links available for all of these things you'll be able to find it directly on our website and you can go to safety pin you can find phantasm Morningside FM. Everything will be available. In fact, if you go to the website now, our, our recent played episode is Morning FM. You can just click and listen to yes. it. Yes. Thank you again so much. I
0: really... Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And hopefully speak to you again soon.
1: Well, you have been listening to Chris Newton and Harry Scott Sullivan discuss Masters of Horror Episode 1 Incident On and Off a Mountain Road directed by Don Coscarelli, written by Don Coscarelli and Stephen Romano from the short story by Joe R. Lansdale, one of America's greatest talents. All of them, all of these people are some of America's greatest talents. If you don't know Steven Romano, Google his name. Gorgeous artist, he's working with Ebon Press right now. The Fulci comics, the Maniac comics, you have the genius work of Steven Romano available easily, as well as the Phantasm comics. But that brings us to the end of this episode. The Astray is full and the bottle is empty. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. It's a blast every time. I love talking to you. You are an ace, good sir.
0: Uh, Same, same. See you next time.
1: Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience.
0: Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.